Hi, friends. Welcome. This podcast is a space where transformative conversations unfold, and this episode is no exception. I had the honor of delving deep into the world of contemplative practices, mindfulness, and personal transformation with the insightful Oren J. Sofer, author of the recently released Your Heart Was Made for This. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are a part of this awesome community and that we get to learn and grow together. Ultimately, a kind of contentment that comes from just recognizing that we're alive, that we're aware, that we have this precious opportunity. One of the things that's so powerful about this kind of deeper, enduring contentment that doesn't come from getting what we want, but actually just um, appreciating being aware and alive, is that rather than leading to a kind of apathy or passivity that I'll never do anything or... I won't work to improve uh, myself or my community or to change things in the world. Um, It actually gives us a deeper source of energy and um, steadiness to work for whether it's uh, learning and self-improvement or creating new policies and affecting social change in a way that's sustainable instead of a way that is um, sort of driven and agitated and prone to burnout. I'm so excited for today's podcast because Orange J. Sofer is a meditation teacher who has influenced my life in really meaningful ways. I first discovered him in the 10% Happier Meditation app, which I've been using for years. And a few years ago, he came on the podcast to talk about his first book, Say What You Mean, A Mindful Approach to Nonviolent Communication. And that book was a game changer for me. It really helped me understand communication, and I recommend it to many people. I actually prefer it to Marshall Rosenberg's book on nonviolent communication. Today, Orrin and I explored the profound connection between heart and mind, a concept deeply rooted in Asian philosophies. Orrin emphasized that these traditions don't separate the heart and the mind. Instead, they teach us how to train qualities that can significantly impact our personal goals and the broader challenges facing the world. We discussed the importance of shaping our lives intentionally. Oren highlighted the difference between aspiration and agency, a sense of what is possible versus actively participating in the creation of that possibility. And I think that is a very important distinction. He also emphasized that the habits of thought and emotion that we practice shape our heart-mind. Every moment becomes an opportunity to cultivate the qualities that we desire. Our conversation delved into the intricacies of contemplative modes, exploring the interconnectedness of the heart and neuroplasticity. Orrin shared insights into the challenges of modern life, where we often feel overwhelmed and powerless. We talked about focusing on qualities rather than fleeting emotional states, and that how that can lead us to personal and social transformation. Orrin introduced the concept of orienting and practicing specific qualities, emphasizing the importance of discerning between pain and suffering. 
We also explore the idea of strengthening the good versus fixating on the bad and how contentment plays a crucial role in overcoming the relentless pursuit of success. And I particularly loved when we talked about strengthening the good because that is all what positive psychology is about. It's not about going from negative to zero. It's about how can we flourish? How can we go from zero and cultivate qualities, states of mind, states of being so that we can all thrive? Oren provided profound reflections on contentment, which is something that I struggle with. I am somebody that is always reaching for more, and I don't take the time to be content. It's something that I'm working on. And we talked about challenging the societal narrative of relentless seeking. He emphasized that contentment is not the absence of success, but the recognition of the pleasure in having enough. And if this rings a bell, Mario Fraioli and I talked about what is enough in our episode a few weeks ago that you can check out. In a culture infected by the drive to be better, Oren highlighted the importance of discerning between equanimity and clinging, breaking free from the craving for intensity and success. And I would like to say that I don't think there's anything wrong with having a drive for more, a drive for success, but it's how you manage your relationship with that drive and what that is costing you with your well-being. You can manage both. You can have high performance and well-being. That is what this entire podcast has been about over the last six and a half years. But it is a very challenging interplay, especially when you start acquiring external success. We also talked about differentiating compassion, kindness, and empathy. And I don't want to give that away, but it was really helpful to learn what those differences are. Oren's teachings offer a beacon of light, a reminder that our personal growth is intertwined with the betterment of society. When we do contemplative or psychological work, it offers our experience for self-actualization and can move towards transcendence so that we can be in service of others. And in a state of transcendence, we are essentially transcending the self and the ego. We talked about how letting go opens the door to inner peace and resilience. And that is something that I have also been working on when I feel myself actively clinging to a way that I think something should be or a challenge that I'm facing that is just such a struggle. I try to tell myself to let go just a little bit. Let go of the idea of how I desperately want something to be. Let go of the idea of how maybe something didn't happen the way that I wanted it to. Just to let go a little bit from a white knuckle death grip on life to a more relaxed grip so that I can do better. And I always think about the metaphor in mountain biking. If you're gripping the handlebar so hard and you're tensing all of your body, you're not going to be able to navigate the rocks and roots and bumps on the descents. You have to be able to breathe, grasp the handlebar lightly, stay loose in your body so that you can be more resilient and flow on the trail. And that goes for life too. If you found today's episode enlightening and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and share this episode with your friends. I think that this is a very powerful episode. I think Your Heart Was Made For This is the book that many of us have been looking for because of the way that you can work through it. It's not a book you just sit there and read from start to finish, but it is something you can actively pick a chapter and work on for a couple weeks at a time. And I'm starting with contentment. And last, I see a bunch of people have been signing up for my newsletter at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. There's also a pop-up that shows up at sonyalooney.com. I was sending out a weekly newsletter for years. And since I've started grad school, I am not sending out a weekly newsletter, but I will be sending out infrequent newsletters to keep you updated on the things that I've been learning in school. If this is your first episode and you're thinking, what is she talking about? I'm doing my master's degree in applied positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. And that means that I'm learning about all of the different perspectives and well-being and how we can be more resilient and have grit and have flow experiences while holding positive emotions and psychological richness 
and having meaning and mattering in our lives. So it's, it's such a deep field. It's hard for me to even summarize it in an elevator pitch like this. But if you like this podcast, I guarantee that you will like the field of positive psychology as well. All right, so let's jump right into this episode with Oren J. Sofer. I'm so grateful that I got to spend time with him and I am still glowing after this interview. Oren, welcome to the show. Hey, Sonia. Thanks. It's good to be back. Yeah, you know, our last interview was about your your first, it was Say What You Mean, your first book. It was, yeah. About Say What You Mean, um, a nonviolent or a, a mindful and nonviolent guide to communication. Is that the mm-hmm. tagline? And, uh, yeah, m- more or less. And that that book is a book that I recommend all the time because communication is such an important part of relationships and especially in, in these times, like being able to speak what our needs are. So like, how has your view on communication changed at all, if at all, since you wrote that book? I don't think the central view has shifted at all, but certainly my sense of what's required to be in conversation in a skillful way has deepened. Um, and that that's one of the aims of the new book, one of two very important aims, and that is to provide a deeper and broader training ground for the kinds of skills and capacities we need to really have meaningful, important, or difficult conversations. What the first book was designed to lay out the basic skills and the central importance of mindfulness, right? That we can't really communicate effectively if we're not aware, if we're not here. What I've learned over the last five or six years of teaching, at this point, probably thousands of people to use nonviolent communication and mindfulness is that there are a whole host of other capacities that are essential to do this well. Everything from curiosity to courage, to empathy, forgiveness, compassion, resolve, patience. So to the degree that we do or don't have access to those qualities, it's uh, more or less difficult to have the conversations we need to have today. Yeah. Like the quality of our inner lives impacts the outer life, whether it's within relationships or in your book, you speak specifically about things like social justice and how all of these qualities are important for making change. Exactly right. And that's the the other central aim of the book is to look at how our inner life can be a resource and a guide for being more effective in our lives on all levels. So personally in our families, but also, as you note, in our communities, there's so many overwhelming challenges and crises that are unfolding around the world and in our communities today, everything from the ecological crisis to economic uncertainty and real difficulty with inflation and just making ends meet to the wars that are unfolding around the world. And I know a lot of people, myself included, are very rightly disturbed. And so we need inner resources to stay balanced, to keep our eye on the ball, but also to respond effectively and wisely. So the book is really designed to broaden the scope of what do we mean by something like contemplative practice or you know, we can talk about it as wellness. I know you're doing a degree in positive psychology, but we could also talk about it as spirituality or that beautiful phrase you just used of our inner life. How can that be something that's not just for us alone internally, but actually a springboard for fulfilling our potential and being more effective in our in our world? Yeah, something that we talk about a lot is that well-being doesn't only reside within the individual, it's it's a collective endeavor. And in your book, you talk about like the book is called Your Heart Was Made for This, or is it Your Heart Is Made for This? 
No, yeah. Sorry. You got it right. Your heart was, was, yeah, that's right. And actually, even just seeing that title, whenever I'm experiencing a challenge, I think of that book title, Your Mm. Heart Was Made for This. And it gives me strength that I might be searching for. And in your book, you talk about training qualities and, and qualities of the heart, but that the heart is not separate from the mind. So can you talk about like the heart and mind connection and what these qualities, like what a quality is? Sure, absolutely. So some of this is coming out of Asian philosophy and different religious traditions in Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia. The one that I'm most directly trained in, of course, is early Buddhism. But in the whole scope of Asian philosophy and religion, the word for heart and mind is not separate. So the understanding is that what we refer to in the West as our, say, emotional heart and our thinking mind are actually connected and the it's the seat of awareness in our being. And this heart-mind, uh, this capacity we have to be conscious and aware, to feel things and to respond is not fixed. So the whole realm of contemplative practice, uh, as well as a lot of modern psychology is based upon this understanding that we are designed to learn. And so every day we're practicing something, we're learning something, we're getting better at something. And as the saying goes, practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes permanent. So what are we practicing every day, right? Are we practicing being impatient and agitated and frustrated and rushed. And if that's the case, then, hey, guess what? We get really good at being impatient, agitated, frustrated, rushed. Whereas if we are able to learn how to use our attention wisely and how to shape our heart-mind, we can use every moment of every day to practice being patient, being kind, being generous, being courageous, being compassionate. And then we get better every day at that. Every day we we grow stronger, we grow more resilient if we know how to train the heart-mind. So one of the analogies I like to use, Sonia, and I think you'll appreciate this as as an athlete and someone who really appreciates being in the body, is it's like the difference. So the difference between meditation or mindfulness and contemplative practice is like the difference between, say, running and exercise. And in the last couple of decades, we've seen this huge explosion of the popularity and even just awareness of mindfulness and meditation in the public sphere, which I think is wonderful. But it's been very limited in that most people associate those activities or practices just with silent meditation. And so I I don't enjoy running very much, <laughs> but I do like to exercise and move. And if someone, you know, if I said to somebody, yeah, I don't like to run, so I'm probably just not going to exercise, they would say that that doesn't make any sense. Or <laughs> in the same way, you know, meditation is not for everyone. Um, and even if we like meditation, there are plenty of circumstances in which it's really difficult to meditate, or we don't have the time, or we're overwhelmed or flooded, and we need other ways of attending to our inner life. And so in the same way, contemplative practice is a much broader arena with a whole array of creative options to shape and deepen and nourish our inner life. Yeah, thanks yeah. for adding some depth to that because I, I think that people view meditation and mindfulness, like you said, as the only way to do contemplative practices because there's a lack of knowledge around what that even means. 
Yeah. So training these qualities is one way. Meditation and mindfulness is another way. What are some other ways that people can practice or do contemplative practices? Sure. Well, let's just define that phrase first, right? Because it's, uh, you know, what do we what do we mean by that? So I define contemplative practice as anything that cultivates awareness, reflection, and that gives us perspective on life that uh, supports a sense of meaning or purpose. So when we consider that, we see that there are many ways to cultivate awareness and perspective, to connect with meaning. So contemplative practice includes things like the arts, storytelling, ritual, study. So a few of the contemplative practices that I draw heavily on in the book, which actually do come out of the broader Buddhist tradition and other spiritual traditions, but that don't get talked about so often or shared, are things like reflection. Uh, this is, in some sense, a synonym for the word contemplation and is a very specific and powerful use of the mind, of thought, whereby we're not just kind of wandering in discursive analysis or ruminating, but very intentionally directing our focus to a certain theme or topic and then listening in a receptive way. So one of the early chapters in the book is on aspiration. And aspiration is our sense of what's possible for ourselves and also for our world and life, which is such an important capacity um, if we want to build a better world or live a more meaningful and fulfilling life, we have to have a sense of where we're going, like having a North Star. So we can use a process of reflection to listen deeply for what's really important to me. How do I want to live? What orients me in my life? And this is a way of sort of asking a question and then just listening and seeing what comes, thoughts, memories, feelings, images. This is one form of contemplative practice. And if it's okay, maybe I'll mention just uh, just a couple of others. Yeah, I'm actually going to bring up some of these. I have a, a little list I made. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Great. So I'll mention two more and then and then uh, yeah, we can we can explore some of the different qualities. I actually I don't know if I answer that other question you ask of what is uh, what is a quality. So maybe I'll take a little detour into that. So qualities, which is the word I use in the book are these innate capacities that we have. Um, they are broader than, say, an emotion or a mind state. Sometimes in the neuroscience research, we might refer to them as traits once they become very developed. So the, the research that I'm sure you're familiar with based on your, your training right now is that we all have these different capacities for a thing, for experiences or um, ways of being like not only mindfulness, but uh, courage or patience or resolve or wonder or gratitude or playfulness or contentment. And initially, these occur somewhat randomly when the conditions come together internally or externally, and that's known as a state experience. It comes and it goes. And for many of us, these different qualities or capacities or states that pass through our life and the great uh, insight and potential of both contemplative practice and more recently today, 
things like positive psychology, which are founded on uh, the neuroscience research, are that we can actively strengthen those states so that they become default traits, actual enduring experiences that inform our life on a moment-to-moment and a day-to-day basis. So other ways of of strengthening these that uh, I explore and lean on in the book, every chapter has instructions for a reflection, for some meditation, and then for some kind of action, some way of putting it into practice, and then a section exploring challenges or difficulties that might come up. So image is a really powerful way to strengthen these qualities or capacities. Image connects our consciousness with the mythopoetic realm, the realm of archetype, the collective unconscious. So it taps into a different aspect of our being and our spirit. So for example, in the chapter on patience, I talk about some of the images that we might use to get a felt sense of how we experience patience, and then to act as a reminder of that experience in a hard moment. So something like an old growth redwood out here in California, we have the blessing of having a few stands of old growth redwood forest left, these massive, massive trees that have lived for literally thousands of years. And to stand before one of them is this incredibly humbling experience, the kind of enduring patience these beings have of living through so much, or the image of a a great mountain or a vast body of water. These kinds of images can connect our heart with experiences that we all have in different moments in our life of feeling expanded or connected to something very stable or strong or a kind of trust in the unfolding of life. And so we use that image to recollect the felt sense of a meaningful or powerful experience that connects us with a quality like patience or many other qualities we might cultivate. And this can become a way of uh, strengthening and embodying those beautiful capacities we have as human beings. So what other qualities did you want to talk about? Well, first, I have a comment about patience because that was actually one of my uh, qualities here. And when you're speaking about standing next to a redwood, an ancient redwood, or being in the presence of a mountain, the emotion that you're experiencing is awe. So Mm. it just makes me think about how awe in some cases is connected to patience contextually because you can experience awe in situations that aren't about being in the grandness of something else. But yeah, this just makes me think about emotions and how they can impact some of these qualities because you said that these qualities are not emotions. They're they're more than just an emotion. Yeah. Yeah. They're not just emotions as as you just said. Yeah. They're they're broader. They often include an emotion. And I love I love the point you're making there, which for me highlights the fact that many of these qualities support each other. And um, so there is a chapter on wonder, which I use as a synonym for awe. And you know, something like gratitude or joy, you know, might also be connected to that experience. We feel a sense of uh, wonder at being in the presence of something as beautiful and incredible as a vast tree or a beautiful vista of a mountain. Um, And we feel grateful for it and we feel nourished by it. There's some sense of joy inside. 
Um, and all of that can connect us to other experiences and capacities like patience or um, very important quality I talk about in the book of equanimity, which is this kind of wise, balanced perspective that we get at certain moments that we can strengthen. Yeah, it makes me think of emotional granularity or just granularity with our descriptions of things. And that's a, a big part of resilience is being able to better describe and name how you're feeling. And even just reading these 24 qualities, just how you chose them, how you oriented them in the book. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, and then we'll get into the details of some of them. Yeah, yeah, thanks. So so there are 26 chapters, and the idea, as we were talking about before, is that if you devote two weeks to each chapter, gives you a whole year of learning, exploration, and cultivation. So many of the qualities come out of classical Buddhist teachings. Um, the Buddha lived in a period where there was an oral culture. And so the way of remembering things was to create all of these different lists. Those are the pedagogical structure they used. And so I started looking at some of the core teachings and the different qualities that are emphasized in waking up and realizing our potential and wanting to translate those into modern terms and how they can be an asset for us in our day-to-day -day life. And then I also looked at my own experience in my own life, my meditation practice, and thought, well, what's missing here? You know, what what is actually essential to this process, but that isn't named directly. And those were some of the qualities like rest or play, even devotion, which is one of my favorite chapters because. I'm trying to reclaim that capacity from its limited association with the religious context to a more humanistic experience of sincerity and wholeheartedness and enthusiasm, which I find is so essential to living a, a meaningful life and to being effective in anything. So those qualities were things that I recognize are present in my own meditation practice that I wanted to include. And then the the order of them was also a really fun uh, project for me and um, really is based on my understanding of how the spiritual path actually unfolds and this kind of underlying pattern in the human psyche of it's almost like a wave of um, certain qualities that lay a foundation and start with uh, energy of initiating and getting going and then reaching some kind of uh, peak or plateau where things start to stabilize and get integrated and then moving into more subtle experiences of things like contentment or balance or forgiveness that bear a quality of freedom or release and as i as i describe that, I think many of us can relate that to just ordinary experiences in our lives of something like I was talking about running before, even though I, I don't like running, I do do it sometimes because it's such an efficient form of exercise. But I experience that same thing with running. There's kind of this, it's hard to get going. It's like the body hurts, it's uncomfortable. But then once we get going, we hit our stride and there's 
this kind of sense of like, yeah, okay, like I'm with this, I'm moving, things are flowing. And then towards the end, there's this very kind of sweet endorphin rush and this kind of release and relaxation that comes in the body. So I, I think that this process is something that's quite natural that occurs on many levels, not just physiologically, but also um, emotionally and spiritually. And that's really the design of the structure of the book is to support people to move through that process and get familiar with it by attending to these different qualities and their energies. A comment I want to make about the discomfort of, of running or, or biking or whatever you're chosen or maybe not wanting to choose, but doing form of exercise <laughs> is that there's pain, right? You mentioned pain and discomfort, and there are certain types of pain that are appropriate and certain types that are not appropriate. But I think what causes the suffering with exercise and, and the resistance is trying to separate yourself from the pain while it's happening. So you're going, mm -hmm. like you're burning your lungs or whatever it is, and you try and say, I'm separate from this. So one of my actually um, contemplative practices in exercising is when I'm actually pushing myself and feeling the pain is saying, I am the pain. Mm. I'm not separate from it. And mm. I can actually go straight through it. And, and it just goes mm. straight through me. And then I can just accept that it's there. And mm. I found that that's been a really helpful way to think about the discomfort of exercise, which actually translates to other places in life. Absolutely. I love that, Sonia. And it's so resonant with really the central thrust of Buddhism, which is about examining our relationship with pain and suffering and recognizing that there's a difference between pain, which are the unpleasant sensations and experiences that are unavoidable in life, and suffering, which comes from, as you just so aptly noted, our resistance to it, our wanting to get away from it, to be separate from it, to avoid it. And when we can transform that relationship to discomfort, to unpleasant things, there's a different kind of freedom that we can find. So I'm going to jump into a quality or, or two qualities here, contentment mm. and generosity. And I'll tell you why I'm starting with those. So first of all, I love that you chose to strengthen the good instead of get rid of the bad. Um, that's also mm. a fundamental in positive psychology. But like in your book, you said, I'm not, I don't have chapters called anger and anxiety and sadness. Like you have the opposites of those essentially to strengthen the good. But whenever I read contentment and generosity, it made me think of how we are experiencing life now. There's a lot of envy. There's a lot of wishing our lives were different because we're assuming that everybody else has it easier than us. Mm. And I think that, that that feeling of envy creates a constricted grasping feeling. So the opposites of envy is contentment and generosity. So contentment was one of the ones I had written down because if you ask people, what do you want most in life? especially people who are striving, they say, I want ease and I want contentment. So can you talk about cultivating contentment without resignation? Because I think that's another thing that people are afraid of. Yeah. Thanks, Sonia. Yeah. I just, I want to speak to the broader principle you named in introducing this quality of strengthening the good and the positive. And the idea, as, as you noted, is that those difficult experiences we all have of grief and anger and fear and worry, when we orient to the wholeness and the strength and the goodness in our hearts, we then have the resources to metabolize them, right? So it's not, as you were noting in the exercise analogy, it's not that we're avoiding or running away from or trying to be separate from those uncomfortable experiences, but rather creating, strengthening, and attending to the context or the inner environment that can actually 
understand and heal those places. And so while there are no chapters on those qualities, as you've probably noticed, I they're woven throughout the book in through the lens of the antidotes and the medicine that helps us to learn from them and to grow through them. So as, as far as contentment, I talk about sort of a process of deepening stages of contentment. Maybe first just to distinguish contentment from gratitude, the way I understand it is gratitude is sort of an active appreciation of what we've received which can then give rise to contentment, which is kind of a quieter happiness. There's sort of a stillness inside, a a resting with what is that feels satisfied and fulfilled in the here and now, which is such an elusive experience that uh, I think so much in our culture suggests we can achieve by chasing after it or by consumption. And that anyone who's paying attention starts to recognize that the promised goal never arrives. We keep seeking contentment through experiences and consumption, even through things like status or a gain of a job or relationship. And while we might feel fulfilled for a little while, it fades very quickly and gives way to this sort of underlying disease or, or a kind of emptiness, wanting something inside. So how do we really uncover that sense of fulfillment and uh, enough, you know, what is enough? So the first stage is recognizing the very temporary kind of contentment that comes when the world aligns with our preferences, when we actually get what we want and craving ceases. This is important because it actually helps us to recognize like, oh, I can feel satisfied, but oftentimes we might overlook it then we can start to notice the sense of happiness or satisfaction that comes when our needs are met when we are fulfilled so you know how often do we say eat past the point of being full or maybe uh indulge in watching television longer than is really <laughs> nourishing for us you know instead of just watching one thing we end up binging or watching three and then feeling strung out and tired and exhausted so um, a simple meal a workout a good night's rest starting to appreciate the uh, understated pleasure of enough to attune to it it's not the fireworks it's not the ice cream cone or the hot shower and the intensity of pleasure it's more of a sense of ah just just a subtle out breath and we start to feel at least in that moment a kind of stillness we can rest there this is a temporary kind of fulfillment so noticing this is the beginning of discovering a deeper contentment that's not actually dependent on getting what we want or things going our way. So this can arise uh, in different ways. One is just by noticing that there are actually moments during the day when we are content, when we're not driven or made ill at ease by the sense of wanting to get something or the pressure and agitation of trying to get things done. We can notice the absence of that kind of stress and really appreciate like a 
sip of clean water or a breath of fresh air or stepping outside and just taking in the quality of the light or the air. So there are these moments throughout the day where we actually have an experience of freedom and satisfaction. And if we notice those and attend to them, we begin to recognize our capacity for contentment and for letting go. And this is the skill that I think we need to develop if we really want to experience a more enduring kind of contentment, which is uh, renunciation, simplicity, recognizing the agitation of always trying to get somewhere, or control things, or have something, or even the kind of drive to be better can be infected with a quality of agitation that's based on not being good enough or rejecting ourselves. So learning how to let go, learning how to recognize those drives and not follow them, but coming back to discomfort to just bear with the temporary discomfort of that feeling ill at ease, wanting to get somewhere, needing to get it done, wanting to be better, and noticing what happens when we just bear with it, when we're able to be patient, not react, stay steady, is that it it passes. We discover a kind of deeper contentment that comes from just being here. We see other things open up, like the kind of uh, blessings of being alive, the small things that we overlook, and ultimately a kind of contentment that comes from just recognizing that we're alive, that we're aware, that we have this precious opportunity. One of the things that's so powerful about this kind of deeper, enduring contentment that doesn't come from getting what we want, but actually just appreciating being aware and alive is that rather than leading to a kind of apathy or passivity that I'll never do anything or I won't work to improve myself or my community or to change things in the world, it actually gives us a deeper source of energy and steadiness to work for whether it's learning and self-improvement or creating new policies and affecting social change in a way that's sustainable instead of a way that is um, sort of driven and agitated and prone to burnout. So that was a long answer, but I'm I'm curious how all that lands with you and you know what do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, I almost feel like contentment is the kingpin for a lot of problems in life because I think that the reason why people are always consuming or searching or even running over other people, you know, in a in a negative competitive way is that they're trying to feel like they're enough. If I can just get more, if I can just do more, if I could just be more, then I'm going to be enough, then life will feel good. Mm-hmm. And this underlying current of contentment, it's, it's not a calm water. It's, it's, it's a very choppy rapids that are, are, are difficult to manage. Yeah. And I just, I love that you're bringing it to that. And what's so important to me about it is acknowledging the cultural messages that so many of us internalize and how you know craving and consumption is what drives the global economy and that you know we we have all been molded and shaped to be consumers and to buy into this delusion really that our sense of fulfillment and satisfaction and self-worth 
can come from having something, getting something, or becoming someone, rather than recognizing that each of us is, in some really fundamental way, beautiful and whole and enough just as we are. And there's room for improvement too, of course, but that we can start from that place of recognizing our wholeness. So the the piece here that is so essential to me is examining and becoming aware of the force of craving, this kind of unconscious thirst you're talking about to fill some hole inside and um, our capacity to release ourselves from craving. So I tell a story in the chapter on renunciation, which is the, the skill of transforming our relationship with this drive to be filled up, this unconscious sense of lack inside about uh, training as a monk at the monastery where you you live with a very high level of simplicity. You know, you don't have any choice over the clothes you wear. You just wear simple robes, um, only eating before noon, so no supper, no entertainment like TV or music, celibate. So this is a lot to let go of. And of course, it's not just that you know, the craving just vanishes when you live in that way. It actually gets more intense because you're restricting all of these outlets and impulses that we have to temporarily get our fix. And so I remember this one day. So I, I one of the things I talk about also in the book is my journey with a chronic digestive condition and some of the very difficult and embarrassing lessons I learned on how to take care of my body in relation to that. So part of having that condition meant that it was not healthy for me to eat sugar or like wheat and baked goods. And so the craving one day was so intense that I in the line cleaning uh cleaning out my my alms bowl this bowl that we would eat our meals out of and i saw there at the top of the compost bucket this uneaten glistening chocolate brownie <laughs> and i looked around to see if anyone was watching and i had a moment where i was alone no and i you know i reached my hand into the compost bucket and pulled this this dessert out and you know ran into the bathroom to just kind of gorge myself on it and you know as sort of embarrassing and um as that was to see in myself it was this really powerful lesson to recognize that trying to suppress or avoid or judge myself for for wanting and craving wasn't helping it was just intensifying it and that i needed to find another way to relate to that hunger inside Thanks for sharing that story. Yeah. <laughs> I think a broader point that we're making or that you're making with contentment is that it's okay to strive for more, to want to be better. We're not you shouldn't have to renounce the success itself. It's renouncing the need to have success in order to be whole, to matter, to be enough. Absolutely. So, so well said. Yeah. Cultivating, you know, why or, or understanding why you're you're maybe striving for more in mm-hmm. a clinging, hungry way, and what are what are the underlying reasons? Yeah. Is it? And I think that for a lot of people, it's because we want to matter. We, yeah. we we think that if we can just do more, be more, have more, then we'll finally matter. Mm-hmm. And and that goes down to like relationships and belonging and feeling connected, which is is what all of this is about, and what your your last book also supports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how can we? 
attend to the hurt inside of feeling like we don't belong or that we don't matter, that that experience that's so uncomfortable and in some ways even scary, right? To turn towards these questions that you're naming, I think takes a tremendous amount of courage and insight to recognize, you know, yeah, I'm driving myself so hard pursuing this goal, which might be, as you note, a worthy goal to try to get away from this experience of feeling afraid that I don't belong or I don't matter or people don't like me. And to recognize that those fears and and wounds and worries, when we actually start to turn towards them and welcome them, develop a different relationship with them, they lose some of their power, they lose some of their strength, and that we can start to heal them, both through the relationships in our lives, the things that are present and that are nourishing, and also through changing our way of understanding ourselves and our our place, changing our sense of our conception of ourself and developing a more enduring kind of acceptance and love for who we are, you know, really seeing the goodness that is present in each of our hearts and not overlooking that, but drawing on it as a, a source of strength and belonging. So um, I'm just looking at the time and I can't believe how much time has already flown by. <laughs> There's two more places I want to go, but we might only have time for one. So I, I'd like you to choose where you'd like to go. So the first is discerning the difference between compassion, kindness, and empathy. Because I think there's a, a bunch of nuance in there. And then the second is forgiveness. So mm. which one would you like to focus <laughs> on? <laughs> wow, they're such beautiful topics. Well, let's let's start with the first. So I think that these terms, compassion, kindness, and empathy, can be defined in different ways and used in different ways. So it's important for me to note that what I'm about to share is just one way. And it's not necessarily the right way or the only way. So I understand and define these terms. First and foremost, empathy is our innate capacity to connect with and resonate with the felt experience of others. So empathy for me is kind of like the underlying property of the human heart that can vibrate and resonate with others. I use the analogy of um, like plucking a string on a guitar and then that wooden uh, body of the instrument vibrating is the empathy of our heart. And so we can have empathy for anything. We can have empathy for someone's joy, which is a beautiful experience I talk about, right? When someone's uh, something wonderful happens and we say, oh my God, I'm so happy for you. That's so great. It's a kind of empathy. We're connecting. It's a very specific kind of empathy known as um, appreciative joy or celebration, rejoicing, right? We are feeling uplifted by the happiness, the success, the good fortune, well-being of another. So compassion is when this sensitive, resonant capacity of the heart meets the pain and suffering of the world or of others. We feel it. We resonate with it. And that opens the door to compassion. So compassion is empathy for pain. And I talk about compassion as having two parts, two aspects. And I believe this is consistent with some of the the neuroscience research on compassion there's a receptive aspect of compassion. And this is that quivering of the heart. It's the suffering with 
I talk in the compassion chapter about some of the losses personally we've experienced in our community. Lately, I lost my father this year, a very close friend lost their son. And so the receptive aspect of compassion is just that ability to sit together and cry or hold each other. But compassion doesn't stop there. Compassion also has this responsiveness that reaches forward and says, what do you need? How can I help? So the active, responsive aspect of compassion, you know, picks up some groceries and leaves them at the door, cooks a meal, or just even says, you know, hey, I'm here for you. Let me know if there's anything I can do. Kindness is the or orienting towards the goodness in our hearts, and it's that fundamental experience of human warmth. So kindness is kind of the default orientation of our hearts when we're not stressed, overwhelmed, we don't feel threatened. That says, hey, have a good day, you know, or that smiles at a stranger or that is able to move into things like generosity. Here, let me get that for you. Or gratitude. Oh, this is so wonderful. So kindness is the experience of warmth and connection that's available to us when we're not overcome with stress, anxiety, or other afflictive experiences. That's, that's how I understand and, and differentiate them. I'll try to summarize that. I've been trying to differentiate this myself. So I heard you say empathy is more of a resonant emotional like feeling to be with to feel what somebody else is feeling mm -hmm. but doesn't necessarily orient to an action. Mm -hmm. And then compassion is more around when somebody is experiencing a hardship or or suffering it's it's how you attend to that person's suffering. Mm -hmm. And then kindness is is more broad like you can be compassionate and kindness and kind, but kindness is more of a wellspring for other qualities that um, attend to others, but don't necessarily need to be attending to somebody's suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And I would even just go a step further and say kindness is its basic human warmth and connection. It's that experience of connection we feel with others, this sense of mutual recognition and connection. And uh, that's very natural. All of these experiences in my uh, understanding, are very natural for us, again, when we are not beset um, with these difficult, afflictive experiences, which is why it, it's so important both to attend to and cultivate our strengths and then use those to take care of the difficulties we experience so that we can draw on these beautiful capacities we have and share them with one another. So we might have time to talk about forgiveness. Yeah, I think this is a good segue, actually. Kindness, compassion, empathy into forgiveness. So can, yeah. first, can you define what forgiveness is? Mm. I so love that you start with that question, Sonia, because I think there can be so many misunderstandings about forgiveness. So I'll say what it's not first. When I use the word forgiveness, I'm not talking about forgetting what happened pretending that harm is okay, uh, bypassing our pain, erasing the memory, or condoning some kind of uh, painful or harmful actions. It also don't necessarily mean befriending those who have done us wrong. You know, We can forgive and still set limits, take actions. So forgiveness is about freeing our own heart from resentment and suffering from the past. 
So it's about breaking a kind of chain of unhealthy bond we've formed with a painful experience in the past and freeing ourselves in the present from being defined by that experience. Forgiveness is something that we can do individually. It's something we can do relationally. And it's something that I believe we need to learn how to do collectively and communally. So forgiveness isn't about justifying somebody's wrongdoings. Forgiveness isn't even necessarily forgiving the person, but it's releasing emotions and judgments potentially around some of these things that have happened. Yeah. It's releasing ourselves from the past. It's developing a different relationship with what with, with what has happened. Um, and it's a journey. It's a process. It's not something often that you just say, I'm going to do this and then do it once and for all, and it's over. It takes time. It takes tremendous strength. And sometimes with really uh, difficult, painful, or grievous harms, it can be a lifelong process um, that requires tremendous patience and courage and strength. I I think there are two pitfalls that are very common with forgiveness. One is getting stuck in the pain of the past, sort of being consumed by it, identified with it, and, you know, sort of nursing resentment or bitterness. And the other is the opposite of trying to avoid the pain, trying to get away from it, sort of deluding ourselves into thinking that we've moved on or forgiving prematurely out of avoidance of the pain or conflict. Uh, And so the art of forgiveness is one of opening slowly in a balanced way to the hurt, the pain, the anger, the whole range of our experience without feeling overcome, overwhelmed, without drowning in it on the one hand or avoiding or resisting it on the other. And through that process, developing a different relationship with the past is a very, very powerful quote from uh, Nelson Mandela that I share in the book. As you and many of our listeners know, Nelson Mandela was imprisoned for over 25 years, many of that time spent in uh, solitary confinement. His uh, One of his children died. His mother passed away. He was unable to go to um, his funerals. And he said in uh, 1990, uh, when he was released, as I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. It's possible to cultivate forgiveness, to stop resenting the harm we've experienced, or to stop beating ourselves up for the harm that we've done. Sometimes forgiving ourselves is the hardest, and make peace with things that we truly wish had been otherwise, because we recognize that we're wasting valuable time, energy, by staying stuck in the past. So how does one go about doing this? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a reason it's the last chapter <laughs> in the book because I think we need a lot of uh, often we can need a lot of uh, 
preparation, a lot of um, groundwork inside things like cultivating uh, the beautiful, nourishing aspects of our heart, like joy and gratitude and generosity, things like uh, really appreciating the the wonder and the goodness in our lives so that we're starting from a place of feeling resourced. The trauma-informed principles that I talk about at the beginning of the book are essential here to um, to orient, so to start from a place of feeling uh, grounded, whole, connected, um, to start small. So I wouldn't start with trying to forgive you know, the person who hurt you the most in your life or the present or historical circumstances that break your heart the most. You know, I would start with something small to get familiar with the process and build your capacity. And then um, moving back and forth, this is the third trauma-informed principle I talk about in the book of when we're working with something painful or difficult, not just trying to go into the heart of it and stay there, but taking breaks, spending some time with what's difficult and then moving away and uh, resourcing, nourishing. So um, there are different ways of practicing forgiveness. Those uh, three trauma-informed principles, I think, provide the framework. Empathy is essential. I think opening our heart to forgiveness, to um, see uh, whether it's our own humanity, if we're trying to forgive ourselves, or the humanity of others, um, trying to break out of the narrative we've created that reduces someone to a moment in time or a specific action. This includes a certain kind of humility, you know, recognizing that there's more to any of us than how we are in our worst moments. Desmond Tutu says that uh, the, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who played an instrumental role in the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in South Africa after the fall of the apartheid there, forgiveness means that we give another a chance to make a new beginning. It's just that we recognize that um, things can change. The future is not determined. I think ultimately, so empathy, humility, uh, being resourced, um, and then making space. One of the things I talk about in the chapter is making space to feel and open to the whole range of whatever may be present for us. And so if we're starting small, this might be things like just feeling irritated or annoyed or having judgments of ourselves or someone else. And as we work up to more difficult things, it can include very big, intense emotions like rage or grief or despair. Um, but developing the strength to allow those forces to move through us. One of the practices I talk about in the chapter on forgiveness that can be a challenging practice, but that is ultimately freeing, if we do it in the right way, is reflecting on our mortality as a kind of tonic, as a way of remembering the value of forgiveness, you know, really looking at soberly the truth that, you know, one day <laughs> I'm not going to be here anymore and I'm going to have to say goodbye to everything and let go of everything. And do I really want to take this to my grave? Do I really want to still be holding on to this grudge, to this resentment, to this wound, to the sense of what I did wrong or what they did wrong? Or do I want to be at peace? Do I want to come to terms with it? And the reality is that none of us know how much time 
we have left. It's the one guarantee that once you get here, you're going to have to say goodbye. And so it's a practice we can do even on a daily basis as a way of keeping the heart clean, kind of clearing the slate and saying, you know, what do I need to forgive? What do I need to let go of to, to be at peace, to feel free inside? And again, that it's not something um, that just happens like that just because we want to, but it can it can be a real process. And one of my colleagues, uh, Dharma teacher Winnie Nazarko, likes to say, you know, it's enough to just recognize that I hope one day at some point in the distant future, I might want to be able to forgive. Like, that's enough to just plant the seed and start wherever we are at that willingness to even turn towards this because it is radical. It sounds like a thread going through all of this is the letting go piece. Like we talked that we, we referenced it in contentment. We've spoken about it in forgiveness. We didn't really get into equanimity, but my sense is that letting go is a, a part of equanimity because the clinging and grasping of things to have to be a different way is what causes a lot of this suffering and essentially training some of these qualities can help in that letting go process that causes a lot of these issues for us. Yeah. 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 Thank you, Sonia. And I agree. It is um, a thread that runs through the, the book and uh, and our hearts. And I think it's something that we can develop a deeper familiarity with an understanding of that letting go doesn't mean pushing things away. Um, it's not something that we do. Letting go is something that happens. It's like um, a fruit falling from the tree when it's ripe. It's like the heart lets go when it's ready, when it understands that it feels better to put something down than to keep holding on to it. And so that's why all of these uh, practices of mindfulness and kindness and resolve and patience, they help create the conditions for the heart to let go. It's like the sunshine and the rain uh, ripening that fruit on the tree until the heart understands, oh, I'm ready to put this down. I don't need to hold on to this anymore. And then, and then we really feel free inside. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I think it's funny that we only covered a couple. I had this huge list thinking that somehow I was going to get through them, but that's good because that, that means people need to go pick up the book. They can start practicing what qualities resonate most with them. And like you said, they all are related. So lifting one lifts all of them. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me back on the show. It's been great to talk. Well, it's my pleasure. And and where can people find you, your book, your meditations, your your teachings? Absolutely. My website is a great place to check all of that out, orangejsofer.com. I'm also on Instagram at orangejsofer, and the book Your Heart Was Made For This is available uh, anywhere books are sold. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it, and I always feel very, very whole after I'm done talking to you. <laughs> oh, thanks, Sonia. Thanks for your work, too. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you are thinking about working on equality yourself, Give us a shout out. Let us know what you're working on so that we can all inspire each other to be better and learn from one another. As my friend Travis Macy says, life is a team sport and our well-being is a collective endeavor. It is not an individual endeavor. So whenever we are aspiring to add value to ourselves and to feel valued and to add value to society and to feel valued in society, that lifts everybody else up. 
Thank you so much for being here and listening to this podcast. It is such a gift that I have gotten to do this for so long. We are getting close to 400 episodes, which is really hard to imagine that I've been doing it this long. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. I'll see you right back here next week.